Hi, I'm Chris Fleming. Welcome to another edition of Health Affairs This Week, where health affairs editors discuss health policy news and developments. Today, we're joined once again by health affairs contributing editor, Katie Keith. Katie's an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center and an appointed consumer representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Welcome, Katie. Thanks, Chris. Always happy to be here. So readers of Health Affairs and Health Affairs blog are familiar with Katie's rapid response blogging on all things health reform and ACA, as well as their Eye on Health Reform columns in the journal. This fall, though, uh, Katie, as if she weren't busy enough, is taking on some other roles at Health Affairs. We'll start today's episode with one of those roles. Earlier this week, Katie offered us a back-to-school, if you will, reading list on some of her favorite health policy reads and podcast episodes. I'd like to ask you, Katie, to talk a little bit about the last item on your list, a health affairs blog post by Michelle Cohen-Merrill. That post dealt with questions of health equity and race, and those issues, as you know, have become increasingly salient, not only at health affairs, but in the wider health policy community. Uh, Tell us a little bit, if you will, about this item and why you picked it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And it was uh, really fun to put together this reading list, so I, I do hope... Uh, people enjoyed it. Um, it's I don't only read about the Affordable Care Act, uh, so it was it was great to highlight some additional excellent pieces, including this piece from uh, Michelle, which was published at Health Affairs. So uh, Michelle's you know article really focused on a recent decision from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Uh, fans know them as ACOG, and they made a decision to update their anemia in pregnancy guidelines, which had previously had a different standard for anemia for Black women relative to women of other races. Uh, this stemmed back from data in the 1990s uh, that you know, suggested at the time that we should have a different anemia threshold for Black women, which essentially means that Black women would wait longer to get treatment for anemia when pregnant. Um, You know, under treatment of anemia during pregnancy is extremely dangerous. It might mean you need it. You're more likely to need a blood transfusion. It can cause complications um, both during delivery and postpartum. And it's just really, really important to have this guideline fixed. Uh, we'll see sort of how quickly hospitals adopt the new standards. But, you know, this wasn't on my radar at all until I read Michelle's piece. And it's just sort of shocking to me that we had a different standard in place when we know how bad the Black maternal health disparities are in the United States. It was just such a um, a, a timely, important thing to do. And, and I didn't realize that we had that different standard. So Michelle's piece really does a great job of kind of putting that one decision on one um, narrow but critical issue in context. Yeah. And as you say, it really does highlight sort of the range of ways that uh, race and, and inequity uh, get sometimes baked into uh, the system, the health system and the standards that we use. And uh, pieces like this, I think, are really important because they uh, they, they create transparency and they point to these instances. And, you know, the first step in fixing things is to, to know that they're there. So uh, thank you for uh, including that on your list. I'd like to broaden the discussion a little bit. Now, gone are the days, of course, when summer meant that things slowed down a bit and we all took a break. Uh, these days, it seems like the pace of health policy developments just seem to follow the temperature ever upward. Uh, in addition to COVID and the Delta variant, which we're all too uh, all too well aware of as we record this on Thursday, September 2nd, uh, what are some of the other notable health policy developments that you've been following over the summer? Yeah, well, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Texas uh, abortion ruling that came down very late on September 1st. Um, Chris 
knows that if he let me, I would turn the health affairs blog into a legal blog, but it is in fact not. Uh, we just end up talking about the courts a, a whole ton because it's very important to health policy. But, um, you know, we we sort of finally heard from the Supreme Court late on September 1st. Uh, you had, uh, there, there is a very restrictive, um, extremely restrictive uh, new law in Texas known as the heartbeat law that would essentially ban um, any abortions after uh, six in the first past the first six weeks of pregnancy, um, it, it's expected to bar at least eighty five percent of abortions in the state. Um, and there had been sort of an emergency appeal uh, up to the Supreme Court, and the court had been silent. So the law itself in Texas took effect um, on September first. You had the Supreme Court finally weighing in about twenty four hours later, and in a five four ruling. Um, the the five being the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court, and the four being uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan dissenting, uh, the laws, the Texas laws, allowed to go into effect and will stay in effect, which um, you know essentially bars abortion in Texas. And so the litigation is going to continue at the lower court level, and you know we'll sort of watch it proceed and move through the system. The Supreme Court will also consider a separate abortion challenge based on a Mississippi law during its next term, which starts in October. That law would bar most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, and I think oral argument is expected in December. For you know, I I don't cover uh, a lot of these issues in great detail, but there's great writers out there who do. So there's lots of great explainers about the new Texas law, and um, I guess I would emphasize for listeners, this is an extremely sort of unprecedented state law on its own right. They included some different provisions to try to insulate it from judicial review. Um, and the sort of process by which this came to the Supreme Court is a little bit wild. And there's a lot of talk out there of um, the need for reform of the so-called shadow docket. So um, lots of resources that I'm sure we can we can share on the piece, but uh, a lot going on with the Texas abortion ruling this week. Yeah. And just to to clarify for our listeners, and I know you know this, Katie, but that my understanding is that the uh, what was at issue, uh, as you pointed out, is not was not the final question of whether the law would be found constitutional or not, uh, but whether it would be enjoined or or barred from being put into practice, uh, maintaining the status quo while the full litigation went forward. And just to pick up on something else you said, I think uh, for listeners, this is a, to my mind at least, uh, this is a hugely important case. I mean, not only for the effect on women's health and reproductive issues, uh, which are huge in their own right, but as you mentioned, there's this kind of uh, odd enforcement mechanism where they basically said, well, the state officials aren't going to enforce it. We're going to allow basically anybody, as I understand it, to uh, sue uh, abortion providers, people who help uh, women get an abortion, you know, from the uh, somebody who pays for it, right down to the Uber driver who brings the woman to the clinic. Uh, and the idea being that, well, you know, state officials aren't involved in enforcing it, so you can't, you know, nobody can uh, sue as you normally would to try to enjoin the law from going into effect. Uh, and I guess that's, it seems to have succeeded, at least for now, and we'll see as we say, you know, what the, what the full litigation brings. But uh, that's a huge issue to my mind, because it doesn't, wouldn't just apply to abortion. You could imagine laws uh, that had that enforcement mechanism that would allow infringements of almost any constitutional right. So this seems to me to be a huge legal issue, you know, above and beyond just the, 
the sort of specific aspects of the case and the specific contents, context and abortion rights. That's exactly right. And Chris, you're echoing a number of the points made, um, at least in the Chief Justice's dissent on this issue of, um, you know, yes, under normal circumstances with a law this broad and that is so uh, out of line and inconsistent with prior Supreme Court precedent, you would have the law stayed as the the legal issues and the constitutionality was worked out. And that is, I think, what makes this so such a sort of extreme decision from the Supreme Court to allow such a such an extreme law to go into effect while um, those questions are being answered. It's it's highly unusual and I think it's gonna cause a lot of access problems in Texas. Yeah. Well we could of course talk this is something we could talk about forever. Uh, but let me give you a chance. I know you have some other issues that you wanted to point out. Uh, there was a, a report that just came out that talked about the solvency of the Medicare and Social Security Trust Fund that I know you wanted to talk about, for instance. Yeah, um, another big week for that. That's a report that many people have been waiting for for a while. I think my understanding is it's quite late relative to prior years. Um, but in terms of you know what the report found, uh, we're headed towards um, insolvency in 2026. It's actually quite similar to prior years. For folks who are interested and really want to dig in on that data, uh, I believe um, they sort of did not think that COVID-19 would have as much of an impact as maybe folks might have thought. So there's a lot to dig in on there, but just really, really important for folks who care about healthcare financing. Um, On the Affordable Care Act and sort of coverage changes, we got a little bit of data on the uninsured rate from 2020. Uh, Essentially, the National Health Insurance Survey showed that the uninsured rate between 2019 and 2020 it's actually pretty similar. Uh, you know, there there were some differences, but nothing's um, statistically significant. And I think that really underscores the role that both Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act have had. You know, in prior sort of big economic downturns or crises, uh, we have seen significant coverage losses. And at least the preliminary data that we're getting did not show that that happened, uh, at least for 2020. So some interesting stuff on sort of the data side and analysis there. I do want to uh, give us a chance uh, before we run out of time to take a look at uh, what's ahead in the fall. Uh, so what are some of the pending developments uh, in the health policy arena that readers should be uh, keeping an eye on? Great question. And there is no shortage of activity going on out there. Um, I'll touch on you know a little bit about what's going on on Capitol Hill and then uh, on the regulatory side too. So you, I think we'll have congressional action. Uh, we'll clearly have courtroom action, as we've just been discussing, and then, uh, you know, congressional action as well. So on the Hill, I think all eyes are on uh, the big budget reconciliation package that is increasingly coming together. We still don't have details, but it it certainly seems like, uh, you know, members of Congress and staff are working towards um, making the American Rescue Plan marketplace subsidies uh, permanent or at least extended. They're working to close the Medicaid coverage gap. They're trying to expand Medicare to add additional benefits and services um, and then expand you know, funding for home and community-based services. So those are just four of the kind of core healthcare things, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that they're considering. And it's all going to come down to you know how much this costs and what the priorities are and um, the timelines for everything as well. So uh, I, you know, over the next month, I would really expect things to come together with that legislation and um, I'll certainly be writing about it and covering it for health affairs. And then on the rulemaking side, um, I keep a very close eye on, you know, what are the different regulations that are under review by the office management and budget? And there's a few Affordable Care Act rules that I'll definitely be uh, keeping an eye on and we should see soon. Um, the first is really the the Biden administration's 
first big marketplace rule. Um, so a lot of that rule was uh, some cleanup and rescission of Trump era policies, but there were also several um, new kind of proactive policies. One is a special enrollment period for low-income people that I think could be really interesting. And then later this fall in the Affordable Care Act, they'll do um, another rule of, of kind of what we should expect for 2023. So I would, you know, definitely stay tuned for more uh, Affordable Care Act rulemaking in the fall. And then the other big issue that I'm watching is impl continued implementation of the No Surprises Act. So these are the historic protections against surprise medical bills that were uh, enacted by Congress in December of 2020. And that huge new law goes into effect beginning in 2022. There's already been one interim final rule that we covered for the blog, uh, but we're all you know, watching and waiting for a second interim final rule on the arbitration process. I know this is something that especially the insurance companies and, and providers are watching very closely. It could dictate sort of how things go on the financial side, whether the law will be inflationary, all these really important questions of how it all gets operationalized. And that rule is just kind of sitting there under White House review, and we should see it soon. Uh, there's a similar proposed rule from under that No Surprises Act on air ambulances and then how everything will be enforced there. So at least two uh, new big rulemakings that are forthcoming on the No Surprises Act. And then the last sort of quick category, which is for folks who are as nerdy as myself, um, and it's kind of the the rules about the rules. So the Trump administration had finalized uh, several uh, rules on you know new guidance practices for HHS and the sunset rule, which basically uh, would sunset all of the different regulations at HHS over time if unless the agency took action. Uh, it seems like the Biden administration is taking both of those on, and we have, we've got proposed rules on both of those sitting at OMB, too. So um, less substantive, but very, very important to process, which uh, matters a great deal, as everyone knows. So another thing to keep an eye on. Indeed, indeed. And, and uh, uh, it's a full plate, and we didn't even get to talk about things like uh, uh, the public option. Fortunately, for those who uh, wish we had more time today, uh, Katie will be doing a lunch and learn on Tuesday, uh, September 28th. It'll be free and, and as things have been virtual. Uh, and she'll break down the myriad uh, ACA and health reform uh, related legislation out there and take your questions. And if you haven't already, sign up for our Health Affairs Today emails. And one of the features you'll get will be a newsletter takeover by Katie, uh, where that day's newsletter will feature her thoughts about health policy developments. And as you have just heard, she's got a lot of them. Seems like uh, it's a good place to wrap up. So uh, let's end there for today. Thanks so much, Chris. It was great. <laughs>